Hello. Sometimes we know something, but somehow we fail to accept it. The book I'm going to discuss today with its author has focused me to understand a simple truth. The country I have lived in for 60 years is over. The United Kingdom, as we know it, is terminally sick. The only question now is whether its death is planned, reasonably dignified, and an opportunity for something new to arise, or whether it's ugly, chaotic, even possibly violent. It's a choice we must face up to. Yet, if recent history is anything to go by, most of us would rather stumble complacently into the dark unknown. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm joined by journalist, writer, public intellectual Gavin Essler, who's the author of a book called How Britain Ends. Gavin, how are you? I'm very well, considering all the stuff that's going on around us. Yes, I'm in quite a cheerful mood, despite also the fact that, in a way, as someone described it, the book is a bit of a lament for the way things could have been. Yeah, no, there's a lot of sadness in the book. Now, I need to say this to you, Gavin, before we start, which is that if I come up to you in the street at some point later in the year, if we're in a world where people can come up to people in the street, I don't want you to think I'm stalking you. It's just that I have a little summer chalet in Kingsdown. So I've actually seen you walking around Deal on a couple of occasions. (laughs) Well, the Kent coast is one of the loveliest places in England. I think we'd agree on that. Between the White Cliffs of Dover and being able to go up to Broadstairs and Richborough Fort, where the Romans came and brought their legions in, and it was kind of the Dover of its day, to Canterbury at the other end, where I spend a lot of time, it is just the most lovely county in England, I think. So I might now feel emboldened to wander up to you in one of the growing number of deal gastro pubs, or in a little pub called The Just Approach, which is one of my favourite pubs. Um, oh, mine too, actually. And the thing about The Just Approach is it's a proper pub. It is a public house. And because it's so small, you actually have to talk to everybody in the pub, which is lovely. Exactly. And it's named after, isn't it, a Daniel Defoe poem, which is just an extended slagging off of Deal as well. Yeah, The Just Approach, I think, to the to the awful, I forget the adjective, the awful people of Deal, because... This is a smuggling town, or used to be, and maybe it will be again with Brexit, you never know. But one of the the traditions was to wait until some foreign ship landed on the Goodwin Sands and was semi-wrecked, and the lads would row out, take whatever the cargo was, and row off again, and quite often leave the people to their fate because there was no money in it. And Daniel Defoe, who was no shrinking violet, even he thought that was despicable. The reason I wanted to talk to you about Deal, or to start off there, is not just in order that I can approach you in the street without feeling embarrassed. It's also that in a book that is quite critical of Englishness, it did strike me, you've chosen one of the most English places you can possibly imagine to live. I think Nigel Farage's favourite pub's in Deal, isn't it? Yes, and I've bumped into him, and I've, <laughs> I've been, well, he may have a lot of favourite pubs, actually, but I bumped into him here. I know the pub quite well, and I know that Ed Miliband once stopped off at that pub and was rather surprised when people told him it was also Nigel Farage's pub. But look, I mean, there's a difference between loving England, as I do, and also being Scottish and seeing it with slightly different eyes and seeing it, as Cromwell said of his portrait, warts and all. 
And one of the things I say in the book is that nationalism has a wonderful side, which is when you watch your rugby team or your Olympic team or whatever it is, but it also has a darker side, as we have seen in Germany and elsewhere. And the question is, how do you amplify the good things, the great things, the culture of England in particular, which I think the book is actually, in some ways, a work of literary criticism. I spend a lot of time looking back at Ben Jonson, Shakespeare, and also Seamus Heaney and others, and looking at our competitive nationalisms in these islands, which make it such a rich and wonderful place and, and have allowed us to reinvent ourselves every century since 1603 and to do so very often at times of crisis. And so I wallow in that. I mean, I love it. I can't tell you how every time I go into Canterbury Cathedral and look up at the ceiling or go down to the crypt, I feel that I am standing in a great culture, a truly great culture. But equally, when I hear people talking about this island race and not really thinking about what do we mean by that? What did what did Shakespeare mean when he put those words in John of Gaunt's mouth? And what did he mean by making perhaps the greatest statement of the wonderful side of Englishness come out of the mouth of Jean de Gaunt, who was a Belgian, or at least he was born in what we would now call Belgium. So that doesn't detract from the wonders of England, that adds to it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's one of the things that I found wonderful about the book, I mean, was that it, it is full of literary references, fascinating little detours, but yet it is an intensely political book. And in a sense, it's almost a kind of quite an unremitting book in terms of the way in which you drive home your arguments. And I, I've rarely felt at the end of a book so much a kind of sense of, right, well, that's settled now. I don't think anyone's ever going to shake the convictions, which I probably already had to some extent, but which this book completely drove home. So I've broken the book down into four core arguments, because in a sense, what I want to try to get across to people is how these arguments are undeniable. And in a sense, what we need to do right now is just to face up to the reality. And then there's a possibility we might do something. Indeed, at the end of the book, you talk about what we need to do. And your first point is we need to recognize reality. So let's start with the first of the four arguments as I've broken it down. And that is that the historical rationale for the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom in sense of a country which is ultimately governed from Westminster and Whitehall, that the historical rationale for that has disappeared because that rationale lay in Protestantism, in war, and in empire. And none of those factors exist and provide the rationale for the United Kingdom today. Yes. I mean, we have throwbacks to Protestantism, empire and war in Northern Ireland with the marching bands and so on. And that's a place I lived and lived happily for, for a number of years. But those three pillars of Britishness, which pulled us together against, you know, in 1603 against the Catholic powers of Europe, which is the reason James VI of Scotland became King of England. We needed a Protestant king or queen against Napoleon, against the Kaiser, against Hitler, and even in the Cold War. Those foreign threats and also the opportunities of empire, which the Scots in particular really enjoyed greatly, one might say, although we're reevaluating that too. Those have all gone. So what I tried to ask is, since no one is going anywhere, we're not actually towing off Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland into the Atlantic and will remain bound by a common culture, a common language with many differences. 
what is the point of the United Kingdom anymore? And who is the voice? Where are the voices in favor of us staying together and rebuilding and renewing as we did in 1922, 1801 and 1707, renewing this extraordinary kingdom? And I have to say, I found very, very few voices that are credible. And particularly Boris Johnson is one of those voices who he doesn't travel well. He works well with some people, but when he goes to Scotland, I can tell you, because I've actually just had conversations in the past few days about this. If you talk to Scottish National Party people, they say publicly they don't really want him to come here and they're privately delighted. If you talk to Scottish Tories, they publicly say, oh yes, please come Prime Minister. And privately they die inside. So who is the voice? Where is the voice? What is the argument? You're absolutely right, Matthew. That was the kicking off point for the book. What is unionism for? And do we have an argument for it in the future? And it's really important to understand that history. And one of the things you have quite a lot of fun with in the book is exposing the cavalier approach to history that many people who talk about Britain have. You know, some quite remarkable failures to understand what actually occurred in events which are celebrated, and a tendency, for example, to talk about Britain's success in terms of wars that were actually fought only by the English, and sometimes fought by the English with the Scots, for example, on the other side. Well, it was one of those great moments listening to the Conservative Party conference in 20, I know I don't have a life really, 2017, <laughs> I think it was, and Jacob Rees-Mogg said, Cressy, Agincourt, we win all these things. We weren't we at the time of Ashenkur. We Scots were on the other side. And in fact, my family at that time were in Germany. We came in the Thirty Years' War because of Protestantism. So who are we when Jacob Rees-Mogg talks about we? He's talking about a different we from those of us in Scotland. My absolute favourite is that great British imperialist Cecil Rhodes, British imperialist, who says... Ask any man anywhere in the world what he'd rather be, and 99% would say English. Well, I don't even think in Cecil Rhodes' day, if you went into a pub in Glasgow or Dublin, you would find find quite that response. So it's almost comic, actually, in some ways, to go through some of these things. So I've realised I'm kind of starting to fall into one of the traps that many people fall into, as you expose in your book, which is that I started off in my introduction talking about the United Kingdom being terminally sick. And I've talked about the historical rationale for the UK, but maybe I should be talking about Britain, because in a sense, at the end of the book, as we'll find out as our conversation goes on, you do have a way of thinking about the possibility of the United Kingdom, a United Kingdom surviving. But one of the points you make in the book is the way in which we use the terminology doesn't help. You know, is it Great Britain? Is it Britain? Is it the British Isles? Is it the United Kingdom? Many people talk about Britain when they actually mean England. This confusion about the phrases that we use to describe the country we live in, that, that's quite telling, I think, isn't it? It is. But I don't know about you, but we're of a similar age. And frankly, we haven't really bothered. I've never really bothered about it very much. I mean, I was told by Al Gore once when he was vice president, English sense of humor. And I said, Scottish. And then he said, oh, Braveheart, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not really. (laughs) That was Mel Gibson. So I've been Scottish and British and European, and I've never really bothered if some people think that, apart from Al Gore, because he's quite fun, never really bothered about it. But the differences do matter. And indeed, just last week, I was on a 
a radio program with a very distinguished broadcaster who I won't name because I, I admire this person greatly, who introduced the book as, this is Gavin Esler, the author of How England Ends. And I said, no, no, there will always be England. The question is whether Britain, or the United Kingdom or Great Britain, as it currently exists, will stick together. So yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's a kind of delicious kind of confusion. But these things, like all nationalisms, are not important at all until actually they start to cause a bit of resentment or they have other implications like England has voted to leave the European Union, Scotland has voted not to leave the European Union. Now there's a little problem when you talk about who speaks for Britain. Yeah, so that takes me to the second argument and in a way it feels to me as though this is the argument where I feel your passion coming out. You call the first half of the book Nations and Irritations and I have to say you weren't entirely able to hide the irritation in your voice as you make this second argument. Because the second argument you want to make, and it, it's really important, I think, is that Britain, in your view, is being destroyed primarily not by Scottish or Irish or Welsh nationalism, but by the English variety. Open up that argument for us, Gavin. Okay, well, there's, there's a couple of parts to that. One is that Scots, Irish and Welsh people have thought about their different nationalisms for years. And Scotland had a plan to leave the European Union, or some people did, and it was rejected a few years ago. But at least it was a plan. I think it was a flawed plan for various reasons, but it was a plan. Irish nationalists have always had an argument for what they see as the United Ireland. And Welsh nationalism is different. It's more culturally based and less politically based, because I suppose partly the geography of Wales is such that it would be very difficult to separate in some ways politically in any kind of nearly complete way from a united kingdom with England or a united unit with England. But English nationalism has been really not very well understood and not very well studied over the past few years. And I was struck when I came back from living abroad about 20 years ago how there were many more English flags. People talked much more about England as a unit. And I remember one MP that I interviewed for a program, a Conservative MP from, from Essex, who said that we should be celebrating St. George's Day and we should do it with a public holiday. And I said, when is St. George's Day? And she said, oh, March sometime. And that kind of summed up a longing for some kind of stronger English identity, but not really knowing, if you don't even know when St. George's Day is, it's a bit difficult to have a holiday on it. So I've always been really interested in that part of of our identities, and also the fact that many of the books written about it are themselves elegies. There is uh, Roger Scruton's book, England and Elegy, and he seems to think it had passed a long time ago, because an elegy is something you write about the dead. And I didn't feel like that at all. In fact, I felt there was a resurgent sense of being English pride in it, which I, I thought was great. Obviously, on the fringes, it's somewhat more difficult. And it came to a head for me at least, when I thought about the 2015 election and those 3.8 million voters who voted for UKIP and got nothing. Well, they got one seat, which was Douglas Carswell, who then quit the party. So nearly 4 million of our fellow citizens, most of them in England, voted for something which they couldn't find an expression of in Parliament because of the peculiar way in which our system exists. And at the same time, many of those who study this much more than I do, the Institute for Public Policy Research and others, started to ask people things like, how would you 
be most proud to introduce yourself to a stranger? Would you say you're British or English or would you say you're Scottish or whatever? And they found a rise in people saying English. And again, I I just thought that was a very, very interesting expression. And England is 84% of the population of the United Kingdom. And around the same time, a friend of mine who spent a lot of time in the former Yugoslavia said, you know, I always felt that Yugoslavia could survive Croat or Kosovan nationalisms, but could never survive Serb nationalism. It's very, very difficult if the biggest part of your country feels that for some reason things are coming to an end. And that stuck in my head as well. So it was those kind of things which motivated me trying to examine what was going on in England, and particularly how that was a reflection of a kind of resentment I found among some people that the Scots and the Welsh and the people in Northern Ireland had something that we in England don't have. And I'm not suggesting, you know, I don't suggest in the book that England's going to break up into Wessex or anything else, you know, ancient kingdoms. But I did suggest And I saw it very strongly with coronavirus. Something that should have pulled us all together meant that even then, London was speaking for London. and Greater Manchester had a strong sense of its own identity that the Westminster Parliament wasn't quite doing the job that they wanted. And other areas of England, the North East, Cornwall and so on, had different ideas about how we should approach a common threat. And that to me was very interesting and something that was unresolved. I use the phrase democratic deficit in England because I think that's how many people feel, that their expression of their politics isn't identical to the things in their life that they think are most important, which are local. So I think when you look at the Brexit result, 52-48, I think it's pretty clear, as you argue, that a significant factor creating that majority was a sense in England of resentment. On the one hand, to Scotland and to Wales for the fact that they were trying to build more control for themselves. And on the other hand, the centralised nature of power in England, one of the most centralised nations in the developed world. And then these other factors, as you described, to do with the way in which large sets of opinion simply not reflected as a consequence of our electoral process. And we'll get into some of those issues in a second. But there was just one thing in this kind of part of the book that is diagnostic that you mentioned a few times, but I I want to bring out even more. And that is, I think an important part of this story is the death of the Conservative and Unionist Party. And I think what's interesting to me is it's both parts of that name, Gavin. It's the Unionist part. And as you point out, it has now been for quite some time, and I saw some polling just the other day confirming this, that the majority of Conservative voters in England now would like England to be independent. They don't really want anything to do with the Scots, not interested in Northern Ireland or or Wales. And we know from the way that Boris Johnson has sold Northern Ireland, the Protestants in Northern Ireland up the river, that the unionist part of the Conservative and Unionist Party now is completely empty. But it's not just that, it's also the Conservative part. And that is the idea that lived in conservatism, arguably really until Thatcher came along, I sort of grew up with this idea derived from philosophers like Michael Oakeshott, that conservatism was about a view of the world that said that you should be careful about radical change, that the reason that things are should be respected, and that when human beings try to change everything, quite often things end up 
getting worse. Now, for me as a young radical, I was very resistant to that view. I have to say, as I've got older, I've become more sympathetic towards it. And it seems to me that Brexit is a classic example of a kind of revolutionary act, which is having all sorts of unexpected consequences. So the death of the Conservative and Unionist Party, it's a big part of this story, isn't it, Gavin? It's a huge part. Yeah, absolutely right. And you're absolutely right to put your finger on the lack of conservatism, small c conservatism. In August 2019, I was at Edinburgh Book Festival and I grew up in Edinburgh. Edinburgh is a small c conservative town. You know, the new town in Edinburgh is 200 years old. So things change very slowly in Edinburgh. And that's one of the reasons it's a wonderful place to grow up in. And many of my friends that I was at school with voted no to Scottish independence in 2014, because they felt it was precisely one of those radical changes, jump in the dark, not quite sure, we're going to be out of the EU, how will we finance it? All those kind of reasonable caveats or warnings that you shouldn't embark on a radical change. And during a conversation with one friend of mine at the festival, he said, well, you know, the conservative thing, meaning small c conservative thing to do in 2014 was say no to Scottish independence. The conservative thing now is to say yes to Scottish independence because the big change that's been forced upon us is pulling us out of the European Union, which is terribly damaging. And that's why the Conservative Party is no longer conservative. And I think that's, uh, you know, Brexit is a huge leap in the dark. And it's not only a huge leap it is unplanned. Uh, we know that after four and a half years, it is still not done. And in fact, it is being botched because there was no plan. So you're absolutely right. And also, Boris Johnson himself is not philosophically anything, really. I mean, anybody who can write two versions of what you should do about Brexit, yes or no, isn't really rooted in any kind of philosophy beyond his own personal advancement. And that is what makes it so difficult. Anyone who can go into talks with Leo Varadkar in October 2019 with the red lines about the border in Ireland and come out with a, an imaginary border down the Irish Sea for customs terms doesn't really stand for unionism or conservatism. And that is a profound change for the country. And one other thing I should say to that is that I've talked to two prominent conservatives in the past week, both of whom have said the only way to keep Scotland in the union is for there to be a Labour government. And I confess I laughed. I, I laughed partly at what I would consider old-fashioned conservatives saying that, because they are not fans of the Labour Party. And secondly, the Labour Party's collapse in Scotland is another reason why we're in this difficulty now. Let's move on to the third argument, which I think we can deal with quite quickly, because it's an argument which is completely obvious, but yet there are still some people in England who don't quite seem to get it. And that is that the UK is already quite close to being a federal state. You know, another bit of the kind of problem that English people have with the concept of Britain is they don't really understand how different already Scotland and Northern Ireland and even Wales increasingly are to England in the way in which they do things. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I know, and anybody who pays any attention to it knows that there is no British education system. Scottish system's completely different. There's differences, slight differences in Northern Ireland and Wales. There's no British religion. I mean, the, the Queen is the head of the Church of England. In Scotland, she is another worshipper who's respected, but Jesus is the head of the church. You know, it's a very, very different mentality. There are no bishops 
in the House of Lords from the Scottish Church. The National Health Service is, of course, a national, as in British, construction, but it is heavily, heavily devolved. And with a bit of luck, it should be perhaps more devolved in, in, in some areas. So, yeah, absolutely. We have already done all these things, and some of them have gone well, and some of them, I think, are a bit daft. I mean, I think it's ludicrous that England has 43 different police forces. That seems bizarre to me, but Scotland has one, Northern Ireland has one. And, but we have done it, but we haven't kind of codified it because that goes back to the complacency idea, which is that we just kind of muddle through and we tinker a bit here and tinker a bit there and it works all very well. Well, it does until it ceases to work. But we have federalized by stealth. And the question is, can we build on that? One of the questions I raise is, can we build on that? I think we can, maybe a bit too late, but I think it's possible. And so we come now to the solution. I think you argue incredibly powerfully in the first two thirds, three quarters of the book, that any attempt to hold the United Kingdom together in a way that, for example, Boris Johnson still rhetorically asserts is completely forlorn. Not only is it forlorn, it's also insulting to many people across Britain. But you believe that there is a way in which something which we might still call the United Kingdom can be saved, but it can only be saved through a set of quite radical steps, some of which are to do with federalism and to do with the power that exists in Northern Ireland or Scotland or Wales. And of course, Northern Ireland might simply decide to become part of the United Ireland. But there are also other steps which, which should be taken anyway. One is fair votes in England. We have proportional voting systems now in every other part of the United Kingdom, but only in England do we have a system which leads to the majority of the population having to put up with a government with immense power that they didn't vote for. You also want to see much greater devolution of power in England. You point out that the Conservatives, again, use the rhetoric of levelling up or the Northern powerhouse, but still, and actually it's interesting, Recently, the announcements that have been made about levelling up are all announcements in which it's ministers in Whitehall who will decide how money is going to be spent and who money is going to be given to. And of course, you also talk about the importance of written constitution because you can't have a federal, a genuinely federal structure unless you codify the powers that exist at different levels of government. So this is your recipe for the way in which we might still have something called the United Kingdom, where there are still some things that we do together. And in those things that we do together, it'll still be the English voice that is predominant simply because of the sheer numbers. Yeah. And on this, you know, I'm open to ideas. I just throw out a couple of ideas based on where we are now on the assumption that what we must avoid is even greater dislocation. If you think Brexit is a mess, and I think it's an utter mess and a failure, then you can imagine that unpicking a union of 400 years is going to be even more difficult. But the root cause of much of this is Westminster. The Westminster system is from the era of the horse and cart. We are constantly told how wonderful it is. We're constantly told about the mother of parliaments and certain things are the envy of the world, and they just aren't. I mean, nobody else has got an unelected head of state with an unelected upper chamber of whom some people, I mean, the reforms seem to have made things worse because we get more allegations of cronyism and people who are unqualified ending up in the House of Lords. That's where I would begin. The trouble with this is that it doesn't catch the problems that we've talked about, and particularly nationalism, get the headlines and people feel strongly about it. But when we say, well, look, 
any of the voting systems in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are better than Westminster, we should change it to some kind of more proportional system. I know people's eyes glaze over and that's difficult. And that's one of the reasons why reform has been so difficult. But Westminster is the problem and complacency about it is the problem. And I quote uh, Macaulay, you know, one of the saying that, an unwritten constitution is like pure gold, whereas a written constitution is paper money. Well, we don't have pure gold today. We have Bitcoin and plastic cards that you pay with. We can actually move on. And I think we do have to codify. It's there somehow, but I use the analogy, it's like pre-Reformation Europe, that a few constitutional experts understand broadly, but they disagree how the constitution works or should work. And the rest of us are all in the dark, because unlike other places, and, and I'm not saying that constitutions are perfect for running anything, but they at least explain who does what and what happens when bad things happen. And the final point of that is that there's a number of scholars who talk about Britain being benighted by the good chap theory of government, the idea that everyone kind of knows their place and the good chaps will win through. And if you're a bad chap, you get thrown out. Well, I think that has gone. I think the way in which we have seen, unfortunately, the normalization of lying in public life makes things very, very difficult to argue that everything is absolutely tickety-boo and we can just muddle on for another thousand years because we can't. Yeah, and I think this is part of a broader argument, which is that, as you cite in the book, we know that the liberal democratic system is in retreat. It looked like it was utterly triumphant. 25 years ago, but now it is in retreat. The number of nations that are truly democratic are declining. We see the rise of democratic populism, which, yes, in which people are still elected, but in which many of the other bits of what we would count as a liberal democracy, whether it's free press or due process or some forms of accountability, are brushed to one side. And yet in this conversation about the crisis of democracy, People don't seem to realise that part of the story is that our democratic infrastructure is crumbling and that we have to modernise. I happen to be an enormous enthusiast for deliberative democracy, you know, citizens' assemblies and methods like that that bring real voters in because I think it brings legitimacy to our decision-making. And I think also, unlike the kind of politics you see in Westminster, when ordinary citizens get together and discuss things, they do it in rather a civilised and rather attractive kind of way. It gives you faith again. But the problem with deliberation is not that people don't like it, it's that they don't understand it. And the second you start talking about it, they get bored. And somehow we've got to understand that if you don't modernize your democratic infrastructure, it has consequences. And we're seeing those consequences play out. I mean, the Conservative Party has a commitment in its manifesto to some kind of commission on the future of the British constitution and democracy. The Labour Party have started to talk about these issues. I had Andrew Adonis on this podcast a few weeks ago talking about his idea for a kind of super federal regions in England. Do you get a sense that we are starting to realise that our democracy needs a pretty radical update? Yes, I think we are starting to realise it. I'm not sure which of any of those ideas will win through, but we have got to change things. And rather cruelly, I think, in the book, I say, how do you get to become Chris Grayling? You get to become Chris Grayling or you get to rise in any of our parties by being loyal to the leader, not necessarily being excellent in any of the things that you do. And we see that in the current cabinet too. And we also have seen it in the Labour Party. And I think the two-party system, as opposed to any kind of system where you get ordinary citizens together to discuss things, 
tends to pull people. It used to be said it would pull people together, but I think it pulls people apart and it has proved in the last 25 years to be pulling people to more ideologically driven and less competent policies. And I think Brexit from beginning to end has been exactly that. So I think that the question of how you reform our politics has to be one where you make sure that the two-party system cannot stay the way it is now because you get to the top in the two-party system by playing the party game. And you, you have to remember that Boris Johnson, for example, is prime minister of a country in which he's got an 80-seat majority with 43% of the vote. That is not strictly the way in which I think democracies should operate. And moreover, he became prime minister as a result of the voting of, I think, 0.27% of the electorate who happen to be members of the Conservative Party, who don't represent the society that we live in as a whole. And it's very, very difficult to see how the two-party system can reform itself when the people who get elected to power and can do that got elected to power because of the way in which the system operates. And so I think it will take a great crisis of the type that we now face for us to rethink and actually persuade people that it is in the interest of all of us to have a parliament and a parliamentary system and governments which reflect more the diversity of this incredibly diverse country rather than a section of a section of a section of the electorate, which is what we see now. Yeah, and the problem here, of course, and it's exacerbated in two-party systems like our own and, and America's, is that the competitive nature of politics means that it's difficult to do things which actually rely on people saying that the game is more important than who wins it. And one simple way I sometimes express this is to say, if you asked any politician, they would say they'd much rather that 90% of people turned out to vote than 50% turned out to vote. But if they were told by their campaign manager that the best way to retain their constituency was to get only 50% of people to turn out rather than 90% to turn out, well, you know, absolutely, they would do everything they could to suppress the turnout. And so, you know, the competitive nature of politics is particularly problematic at a moment when you need statespeople to come together and say, we have to repair the game. And that is as important or more important than who's going to win the next round, which brings me to my final question, which might be somewhat facile, but nevertheless, are, are you optimistic Gavin, at all? And to what extent does this depend upon Boris Johnson and how long he continues in office? You don't really disguise your consternation at Boris Johnson and what he said and what he's done. But I spoke just recently, we just put out a podcast in which I talked to Will Tanner, who was senior advisor to Theresa May and now runs quite a dynamic new right of centre think tank onward. And one of the things he said that was quite remarkable to me was he said he thinks the Conservatives could have cut off their right arm to be where they are now in the sense that Boris Johnson's popularity has not suffered that badly, that he will get the credit for the vaccination programme, and that now the Conservatives have got three years to rebuild the economy, and certainly there will be, obviously there always is after a terrible slump, there will be growth. And in some sense, they find themselves in quite a strong position. The Labour Party hasn't really established an alternative kind of agenda. It's clear that you don't think that Boris Johnson has either the inclination or the skills or the sense of responsibility necessary to meet the challenge you describe. If he stays, there's not much reason for optimism, is there? 
Well, I think there's one big reason for optimism, which is the ability of people in this country to engage in what we sometimes call critical thinking and creative thinking and to, you know, our eccentricities are that little fun fact about one Cambridge college having more Nobel Prize winners than all of China and Japan put together. I mean, that's one of those facts that's probably too good to check. But we are a fantastically creative country. And when we put our mind to it, we are able to change. And as I suggested, one of the good things about our history is that we have reinvented ourselves every century or so as a United Kingdom and still manage more or less to stick together. So we have the ability We have the ability, according to the historian Linda Colley, to write constitutions for 70 countries around the world, including modern Germany and, you know, former British colonies. So we have the ability also to try to figure out how machinery of government might work. That's the good stuff. The bad stuff, I think, and the reason why I'm not optimistic is that Boris Johnson has been hugely successful for Boris Johnson and is clearly brilliant at playing the game for some people in some parts of this country. And those people tend to be in England. They don't tend to be in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. So I don't think he is, and I've asked Scottish unionists this in particular, he is not the messenger and he doesn't have the message to keep Scotland within the union, I think. And if George Osborne, to pick another individual who's been writing about this, said recently that he fears that Boris Johnson could be the worst prime minister since Lord North who lost the American colonies, and that the only way to prevent Scotland from being independent is not to let them have a vote. Well, that is the ultimate defeatism of unionism. If that's the best you can do, you're not allowed to vote in it, then I think we're in for a very, very difficult ride. And particularly, Boris Johnson could change his mind tomorrow, and nobody would be particularly surprised. But he seems to be setting his face against letting Scotland have another independence vote rather than setting the scene for holding it together. What he could do is say, I tell you what, you want more fiscal powers, you can raise taxes if that's what you want, you'll spend more of your own money, we'll see how it goes. And we'll think of a few other powers that we will graciously give to Scotland to see how things go, bearing in mind that the Scottish electorate is quite small C conservative and won't want to make a big leap. So he could do all sorts of things. And just a final point, we're talking a lot about the vaccination program, and I think it's wonderful. I think it's one of the few successes of this government, whereas much of the rest of coronavirus has not been a success. But the electorate in this country can be quite ruthless. I mean, 1945, people said, Winston Churchill, wonderful great, thanks very much. Now we're going to try something else. If Labour or other people offer something else which is attractive and is forward-looking, and is not about taking back control, but going forward with something better for a United Kingdom, that could prove very attractive. So optimism tempered with the reality that it is very, very difficult for me personally to have confidence in a government where they have said from the very top, all kinds of things which have proved not to be true. Well, if Boris Johnson was to read how Britain ends, maybe he would once again change his mind. And as we all know, when he does change his mind, his capacity to convince people of his new position is quite remarkable. So let's hope for a Damascene conversion for our Prime Minister. And if not, let's hope that the Labour Party and other voices start to assert the things that we need to do if my grandchildren are still to live in a place called the United Kingdom. Gavin, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. 
that's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.